This is In the Arena, the debates and lectures of Dr. William Lane Craig. Today, Dr. Craig debates Hector Avalos on the resurrection of Jesus. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org. My name is Alex Tacknus, and I'm an assistant professor of political science at Iowa State University. Uh, and this year, a visiting fellow in ethics at Harvard University Center for Ethics in the Professions. I welcome you to an important debate tonight. The resurrection of Jesus. Fact or fiction? Tonight's debate is sponsored by the Iowa State University Committee on Lectures, as well as several Christian groups. Campus Crusade for Christ, Bridgeway Church, The Salt Company, The Rock, University Impact, and Truth Bucket. It is also sponsored by the ISU Atheist and Agnostic Society, which was founded in 1999 in order to provide a supportive social group for students who have non-religious views on this campus. It also functions to educate the public about secular humanist viewpoints. Tonight, we have a topic that has been debated for centuries, the resurrection of Jesus. In an age when it is often quite popular to think of questions of religious truth as being nothing more than aesthetic preferences of taste, tonight we have a debate between two people who believe that history and facts matter, that whether or not Jesus was bodily raised from the dead is essential for evaluating the validity of the Christian faith. In holding this view, they echo that of the Apostle Paul, who in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 made the comment that if Jesus was not raised from the dead, the entire Christian faith is useless. Given the importance of our topic, we are very fortunate to have two distinguished representatives of each position. Dr. William Lane Craig will argue that there is credible evidence for regarding the bodily resurrection of Jesus as a historical event. Dr. Hector Avalos will argue that there is no credible evidence for regarding the bodily resurrection of Jesus as an historical event. Before I introduce the participants more formally in the debate, let me outline a few ground rules. My job as moderator is to ensure that time limits are observed by the participants. I will signal each participant as they approach their limit. The time limits are published and available to the audience, but the basic schedule of the debate is as follows. We will have opening statements of 20 minutes each, beginning with Dr. Craig. There will then be a pair of rebuttals of 12 minutes each, followed by a second pair of rebuttals of 8 minutes each. Finally, there will be closing remarks of 5 minutes each, ending with Dr. Avalos. After that, we will have 30 minutes for questions from the audience. We expect the participants not to exceed their time restrictions, and we expect the audience to remain uh, respectful throughout the debate. There should be no disruptive or loud expressions of approval or disapproval for either participant while they are speaking. We want people to be able to hear the arguments and really think about them. There will be a question and answer session at the end of the debate, and we also expect uh, that your questions will be put forward in a respectful manner. And I also hope that the participants in the debate will set the tone by showing that they value the pursuit of truth as much as they value the pursuit of victory in debate, and that they will set uh, the example by really thoughtfully engaging with the very best arguments that each side has to offer, and that I hope you, uh, in your questions, will have that same spirit. 
Well, with no further ado, let me introduce tonight's debaters. Dr. William Lane Craig earned a doctorate in philosophy at the University of Birmingham, England, before taking a second doctorate in theology from the University of Munich, Germany. While at the University of Munich, Dr. Craig was, for two years, a fellow of the Alexander von Humboldt Foundation, funded by the German government, writing on the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus. Having spent seven years as a visiting researcher at the University of Louvain, Belgium, he has been, since 1994, a research professor at Talbot School of Theology in La Mirada, California. He has authored over 30 books, including The Historical Argument for the Resurrection of Jesus During the Deist Controversy, Assessing the New Testament Evidence for the Historicity of the Resurrection of Jesus, Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up, co-authored with John Dominic Croissant, and Jesus' Resurrection, Fact or Figment, co-authored with Gerd Ludman. He's also published scores of articles in professional journals, such as New Testament Studies, Journal for the Study of the New Testament, The Expository Times, Kurugama und Dogma. He currently lives in Atlanta with his wife, Jan, and they have two university-aged children, Charity and John. Dr. Hector Avalos is an associate professor of religious studies at Iowa State University, where he was named Professor of the Year in 1996 and a 2003-2004 Master Teacher. He is also a founder and director of the U.S. Latino Studies Program at ISU and the executive director of the Committee for the Scientific Examination of Religion, a part of the Council for Secular Humanism based in Amherst, New York. A former fundamentalist preacher born in Mexico, he has a bachelor's in anthropology from the University of Arizona and a master's of theological studies from Harvard Divinity School. In 1991, he became the first Mexican-American to obtain a Ph.D. in Biblical and Near Eastern Studies from the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations at Harvard University, where he studied under F.M. Cross, a pioneer in the study of the Dead Sea Scrolls. He is the author of three books, including Illness and Healthcare in the Ancient Near East, The Role of the Temple in Greece, Mesopotamia, and Israel, Healthcare and the Rise of Christianity, and one in Spanish titled Se Pure Saber Se Dios Existe, a systematic critique of Christian apologetics and a defense of atheism. He is also the author of numerous scholarly articles on the history of healthcare, science and religion, and biblical law. Dr. Avalos has spoken in various places around the world, including Israel, Rome, Oslo, Norway, and London. Please join me in giving a hand to our presenters. Dr. Craig will now present his opening statement. Well, good evening. I'm very grateful for the invitation to participate in tonight's debate. You may not know that I'm actually a son of Iowa myself, having been raised in Keokuk, down on the mighty Mississippi, and proud of the tall corn of Iowa. So it's good to come home. I've also known Hector Avalos professionally for many years now, and despite our disagreement on the topic of tonight's debate, I appreciate him as a gentleman and a scholar. I mention this because of what I feel I must say next. 
In my preparation for tonight's exchange, I watched a video of Dr. Avalos debating this same topic with Professor Rubel Shelley of Vanderbilt University. I was very disturbed by what I can only call Dr. Avalos's unprofessional conduct during that debate. The goal of academic debate is to get at the truth, not to make your opponent come away with egg on his face. But Dr. Avalos adopted several stratagems in that debate which seemed clearly designed to personally embarrass or humiliate Dr. Shelley. For example, Dr. Avalos projected a photograph of an ancient document up on the screen and turned to Dr. Shelley and asked, can you identify this manuscript? Now, since there are literally thousands of Greek New Testament manuscripts comprised of thousands of pages, such a question was plainly ridiculous. It turned out to be a page from a papyrus called P66, which is housed at the University of Dublin, Ireland. When Shelley couldn't identify the manuscript, Dr. Avalos whipped out a slide of another document and said, well, I wouldn't expect you to be able to identify every ancient document. How about this one? It turned out to be a papyrus called P75, which is housed at Cologny in Switzerland. But, of course, there was no way for Shelley to know that. Then Dr. Avalos played his trump card. But Dr. Shelley, he said, these are two of the documents you cite on page 139 of your book, and you can't even identify them? What made this attempt to embarrass Dr. Shelley so egregious is that Dr. Avalos knows that unless you're a professional papyrologist working for some museum, scholars don't generally work with the original documents themselves, which are locked up in climate-controlled vaults or even with photographs of them, but with the published texts of such documents. For example, here is a text of the Greek New Testament. It's the text based upon the finest and oldest manuscripts, including P66 and P75. And at the bottom of each page, it includes all of the most important textual variants from the different manuscripts. So you don't have to, and probably never could, go look up all of the original documents. But Dr. Avalos wasn't through yet. The papyri shown in the photos were degraded and had pieces missing from them, as one would expect. After all, they're old. So Dr. Avalos says to Dr. Shelley, why do you say in your book that these papyri contain a complete copy of the Gospel of John when it's obvious they don't? This was pure grandstanding. To say that a document is a complete gospel doesn't mean that the manuscript is in perfect condition. One typically means that the manuscript includes the whole gospel from the beginning to the end rather than just some chapters of it. In this sense, the Bodmer papyri do contain a complete gospel of John. So Dr. Avalos was not only acting in breach of professional etiquette and trying to embarrass a colleague, but he was actually the one who was wrong, and Dr. Shelley was right. But, of course, all this was lost on an untrained audience of impressionable undergraduates. Now, I say all of this simply to preempt any such strategy being employed in tonight's debate. We want to focus on the evidence, not on people. I hope, Hector, that we can agree to conduct our discussion tonight according to the rules of professional etiquette and decorum that we would exercise if we were speaking, say, at a meeting of the Society of Biblical Literature. And in that way, I think we can help to ensure a profitable discussion this evening. 
Now, the question before us tonight is the resurrection of Jesus, fact or fiction? Notice that these are not the only two alternatives, but rather represent two extremes. In between these is the alternative that we don't know on the basis of historical evidence whether the resurrection is fact or fiction. Now, this is a position entirely compatible with the Christian faith. For centuries, and even today, the vast majority of Christians have not based their faith in Jesus' resurrection on historical evidences, but rather on a personal encounter with the living Lord himself. The resurrection may be a fact, even if we cannot prove that it happened. Now, what this implies is that if Dr. Avalos is to show that the resurrection of Jesus is a fiction, he must do more than just refute the evidence for the resurrection. Rather, he must get evidence against the resurrection. He must show either that the alleged events did not really happen or else provide some better explanation of them. And thus, we both have a burden of proof to bear in tonight's debate. Accordingly, I'm going to defend two basic contentions. First, there are four established facts about Jesus. His burial, the discovery of his empty tomb, his post-mortem appearances, and the origin of the disciples' belief in his resurrection. And secondly, the best explanation of these facts is that God raised Jesus from the dead. Let's look at that first contention together. I want to share four facts which are widely accepted by New Testament historians today. Fact number one, after his crucifixion, Jesus was buried by Joseph of Arimathea in a tomb. Scholars have established the fact of Jesus' burial on the basis of the following evidence. One, Jesus' burial is attested in the very old information handed on by Paul in his first letter to the Corinthians. Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accord with the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised the third day in accord with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. This old information has been dated to within five years of Jesus' crucifixion. The second line refers to Jesus' burial. Comparison of this four-line formula with the gospel narratives on the one hand and with the sermons in the book of Acts on the other hand reveals that the second line is a summary in outline form of the story of Jesus' burial by Joseph in the tomb. Two, the burial story is part of very old source material used by Mark in writing his gospel. Since Mark is the earliest of the four Gospels, his source material goes back even closer to the events of Jesus' life. We thus have very early independent attestation of the burial in both Mark and Paul. Three, as a member of the Jewish court that condemned Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea is unlikely to be a Christian invention. There was an understandable hostility in the early Christian church toward the Jewish leaders who, in Christian eyes, had engineered a judicial murder of Jesus. And thus, according to the late New Testament scholar Raymond Brown, Jesus' burial by Joseph is very probable, since it would be almost inexplicable that Christians would invent a Jewish Sanhedrist who does what is right for Jesus. Four. 
The burial story lacks any signs of legendary development. Even Rudolf Boltmann, one of the most skeptical scholars of the past century, declared this is an historical account which creates no impression of being a legend apart from the women witnesses. The eminent scholar of the Book of Mark, Vincent Taylor, says that even Boltmann's assessment is a notable understatement. The narrative belongs to the best tradition. Five, no other competing burial story exists. If the story of Jesus' burial were a legendary fiction which arose much later than the original event, then it's strange that we have no traces at all of the real account or even competing legendary stories. The unanimity of the burial traditions speaks in favor of their reliability. For these and other reasons, the majority of New Testament critics concur that Jesus was buried by Joseph of Arimathea in a tomb. According to the late John A.T. Robinson of Cambridge University, the burial of Jesus in the tomb is one of the earliest and best attested facts about Jesus. Fact number two, on the Sunday after his crucifixion, Jesus' tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers. Among the reasons that have led most scholars to this conclusion are the following. One, the old information transmitted by Paul implies the empty tomb. It does so in two ways. First, the expression, he was raised, following the expression, he was buried, implies an empty grave. A first century Jew could not have thought otherwise. Second, the expression, on the third day, is probably a reference to the day of the women's discovery of the empty tomb. Thus, we have two extremely early indications of the fact of the empty tomb. Number two, the empty tomb story is also part of Mark's very old source material. Mark's source didn't end with Jesus' burial, but with the empty tomb narrative, which is tied to the burial account verbally and grammatically. And thus, we have very early independent attestation of the fact of the empty tomb. Three, the story is simple and lacks signs of legendary embellishment. In Mark's account, the women come to the tomb early Sunday morning and find the stone rolled away and the tomb empty. They see an angelic figure who proclaims to them that Jesus is risen and will appear to them in Galilee. Then they flee from the tomb in terror and silence. Now, to appreciate the simplicity of this account, one has only to compare it to the accounts in the forged apocryphal Gospels of the second century and beyond. They're colored by all sorts of apologetical and theological motifs which are conspicuously missing from the stark account in Mark. Four, the tomb was probably discovered empty by women. In Jewish society, the testimony of women was regarded as so unreliable that according to Josephus, they were not even permitted to serve as witnesses in a Jewish court of law. Now, in light of this fact, how remarkable it is that it is women who are the discoverers of Jesus' empty tomb. Any later legendary account would certainly have made male disciples like Peter and John discover the empty tomb. But the gospel writers faithfully record what, for them, was an awkward and embarrassing fact. Five, the earliest Jewish response presupposes the empty tomb. What were Jews saying in response to the disciples' proclamation, he is risen from the dead? 
that these men were drunk, that the body still lay in the tomb in the garden? No. They said the disciples came and stole away his body. Matthew 28:13. Now think about that for a second. The disciples came and stole away his body. The earliest Jewish response to the proclamation of the resurrection was itself an attempt to explain why the body was missing. Thus, we have evidence for the empty tomb from the very enemies of the early Christian movement. I could go on, but I think enough has been said to indicate why, in the words of Jakob Kramer, an Austrian specialist on the resurrection, by far most scholars hold firmly to the reliability of the biblical statements concerning the empty tomb. Fact number three. On multiple occasions and under various circumstances, different individuals and groups of people experienced appearances of Jesus alive from the dead. This is a fact which is universally acknowledged among New Testament scholars for the following reasons. One, the list of eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection appearances, which is quoted by Paul, guarantees that such appearances occurred. The old formula quoted by Paul goes on to say, then he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Given the early date of this information, as well as Paul's personal acquaintance with the people involved, such appearances cannot be dismissed as legendary, but must refer to actual events. Two, the appearance narratives in the Gospels provide multiple independent attestation of the appearances. For example, the appearance to Peter is attested by Luke and Paul. The appearance to the Twelve is attested by Luke, John, and Paul. The appearance to the women is attested by Matthew and John. And appearances in Galilee are attested by Mark, Matthew, and John. The appearance narrative spans such a breadth of independent sources that it cannot be reasonably denied that the earliest disciples did have such experiences. Even the skeptical critic, Geralt Ludemann, therefore concludes, it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. Finally, fact number four. The original disciples suddenly and sincerely came to believe that Jesus was risen from the dead despite their having every predisposition to the contrary. Think of the situation the disciples faced following Jesus' crucifixion. Number one, their leader was dead. And Jews had no belief in a dying, much less rising, Messiah. Two, according to Jew Jewish law, Jesus' execution as a criminal exposed him as a heretic, a man literally accursed by God. Three, Jewish beliefs about the afterlife precluded anyone's rising from the dead to glory and immortality before the general resurrection at the end of the world. Nevertheless, the original disciples suddenly came to believe so strongly that God had raised Jesus from the dead that they were willing to die for the truth of that belief. Luke Johnson of Emory University states, some sort of powerful, 
transformative experience is required to generate the sort of movement earliest Christianity was. And N.T. Wright, an eminent British scholar, concludes, that is why, as a historian, I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose again, leaving an empty tomb behind him. In summary, there are four facts agreed upon by the majority of scholars who have written on this subject. Jesus' burial by Joseph of Arimathea, his empty tomb, his post-mortem appearances, and the origin of the disciples' belief. And thus, the majority of scholars would agree with my first contention. But that leads to my second basic contention, that the best explanation of these facts is that God raised Jesus from the dead. In his book, Justifying Historical Descriptions, historian C.B. McCullough lists six tests which historians use in determining what is the best explanation for given historical facts. The hypothesis, God raised Jesus from the dead, passes all these tests. Number one, it has great explanatory scope. It explains why the tomb was found empty why the disciples saw post-mortem appearances of Jesus, and why the Christian faith came into being. Two, it has great explanatory power. It explains why the body of Jesus was missing, why people repeatedly saw Jesus alive, despite his earlier public execution and so forth. Three, it is plausible. Given the historical context of Jesus' own unparalleled life and claims to be God's Son, and the unique revelation of God to mankind, the resurrection serves as divine confirmation of those radical claims. Four, it is not ad hoc or contrived. It requires only one additional hypothesis, that God exists. And even that need not be an additional hypothesis if you already believe in God's existence. Five, it is in accord with accepted beliefs. The hypothesis, God raised Jesus from the dead, does not in any way conflict with the accepted belief that people don't rise naturally from the dead. The Christian accepts that belief as wholeheartedly as he accepts the hypothesis that God raised Jesus from the dead. And six, it far outstrips any of its rival theories in meeting conditions one to five. Down through history, various alternative explanations of the facts have been offered. For example, the conspiracy theory, the apparent death theory, the hallucination theory, and so forth. Such hypotheses have been almost universally rejected by contemporary scholarship. No naturalistic hypothesis has attracted a great number of scholars. In conclusion, then, given these four facts, which are accepted by the majority of scholars today, as well as the failure of all naturalistic hypotheses, I think we're justified in inferring that the best explanation of the facts is the one given by the eyewitnesses themselves. God raised Jesus from the dead. If Dr. Avalos is to show that Jesus' resurrection is a mere fiction, then he must not only refute the evidence for the resurrection, but he must also give evidence that the resurrection narratives of the New Testament are, in fact, false. In the meantime, the rational man can hardly be blamed, I think, if he believes that on that first Easter morning, a divine miracle occurred.
Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Craig, for uh, that review of the Shelley debate. I have a few reviews of your books uh, coming up. Thank you very much uh, for coming to this debate, as the topic is one of great importance to Christians around the world. And let me thank Dr. Craig for coming all the way from his home state to debate at Iowa State University. Actually, this debate is a continuation of an impromptu debate we had November 18, 1990. I don't know if you remember that. Uh, I do. Dr. Craig, in a hotel room in uh, New Orleans. And uh, I think uh, there, in a few minutes, uh, we got to chat about it. It was very nice. And Dr. Craig, of course, has debated this topic a number of times with very important scholars. And as he noted, uh, after his debate with uh, the more famous uh, Dr. Crossan, Dr. Craig wants specifics in debates. In fact, he complained about it. You know, I don't know why he's complaining about the Shelley debate, because that's what he wants, Dr. Craig. He says, it is a remarkable feature of the debate that neither Dr. Crossan nor any of the respondents offer any refutation of the specific evidence. So that's what I was doing with the Shelley debate, and I disagree with you. He was wrong about uh, the manuscript being complete or not. But uh, be that as it may, I can tell you right now, Dr. Uh, Craig, that I very much lament that you were not offered specifics. And uh, I'm here to tell you that I'm not going to disappoint you uh, in this regard. In fact, I aim to be very specific in my challenges and questions to you. I certainly don't want you to leave our good university dissatisfied because no specific challenges were offered to you by an ISU professor. That would not be good with a provost, the dean. And as perhaps many of you know, I used to be on Dr. Craig's side I used to be a fundamentalist preacher, Pentecostal preacher, not only preached the resurrection, I thought I had seen people coming back from the dead in my own church. So I know that legends don't take these two generations he keeps talking about, Sherwin White and so forth. Uh, not true. I stopped believing in the resurrection after a systematic scholarly study and investigation of the specific evidence showed how empty and illusionary this belief is. I had to admit that I, what I was really doing instead of history was good old-fashioned religious prejudice where I was saying my sacred story is true, that of everybody else's is not true. And let me tell you that um, this debate is really not going to be about naturalism versus supernaturalism. The question of this debate was this, as Dr. Tuckness read it, is there sufficient historical evidence to establish that Jesus resurrected from the dead? My basic position is no. There is not sufficient historical evidence to establish that Jesus resurrected from the dead. This is not a debate about naturalism versus supernaturalism, which he's tried to do in many debates. That's his pattern. One can believe in the supernatural and still not believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Many non-Christians religions believe in the supernatural, do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Second, Dr. Craig is actually quite the naturalist himself. I would say he's one of the most relativistic naturalists I've ever encountered because he takes supernatural in his, as historical when it's his story. He takes as natural and uses naturalistic explanations whenever it's somebody else's story. Yes, there are two Dr. Craigs. The naturalist and the supernaturalist. He's a naturalist when it comes to Buddhist stories, 
Hindu stories, Muslim stories. He'll apply naturalistic methods to that. But when it comes to 1 Corinthians 15, Mark 16, Matthew 28, well, he's a supernaturalist. That's historical, you see. So this is what I aim to demonstrate. Some of the main facts on which Dr. Craig bases his belief in the history of the resurrection are no such thing. He just cataloged a bunch of facts that are not facts. Two, many of his facts can indeed be shown to be false or not grounded in any substance whatsoever. And number three, Dr. Craig's so-called criteria, this McCulloch person he keeps talking about whose criteria are completely bogus once you start applying them. For judging the historicity of the resurrection can be used to establish the historicity of events he would otherwise deem to be false or non-historical. And we're going to have a little test to see whether he can tell historical from non-historical in his own Bible. Because you might not know, he doesn't necessarily believe in every resurrection story in his own Bible. But let me tell you about my basic epistemology. I have a very high standard for calling something a fact. To me, a fact, if you presuppose that your natural senses and or logic give you reliable data, a fact is only what I have verified with my five senses and or logic. This podium is here. If you tell me there's a podium out there, I don't know. I can't call that a fact. I haven't verified it directly. It might be a belief, and I make distinctions between two kinds of belief. Reasonable beliefs are based on known causes and phenomena, things that I know happen. Unreasonable beliefs are those that are based on unknown causes and phenomena, things I don't know happen. And I usually illustrate this with my famous baby on the doorstep example, which every student of mine knows. And here it is. You open the door and you find a baby on the doorstep. Didn't see who put it there. Just open the door and there it was. And you're given two explanations. One is, the baby was produced on the doorstep by human beings. Was produced, the baby was produced by human beings, placed on the doorstep by human beings. Another explanation is, the baby's body was created instantaneously by undetectable Martians. Now, which explanation do you think is the more reasonable one? Well, usually my students would say, well, Dr. Alvis is number one. Of course, you know, the uh, baby was produced by human beings, placed on the doorstep by human beings. When I ask them, well, why did you make that selection? You know, they can't articulate quite why they make the selection. But there is a principle there that undergirds all of history and all of science. And notice, please, the selection is not based on possibility. It is perfectly possible that undetectable Martians exist and they put babies on doorsteps. Sometimes he likes to make in his debates, you know, the uh, debate about the possibility of miracles. It's not about the possibility of miracles. It's perfectly possible that undetectable Martians exist. By analogy, it doesn't really matter whether it's possible that miracles exist. The choice was made because you chose known phenomena over unknown phenomena. You know that babies are produced by human beings. You know that babies can be placed on doorstep by human beings. Even if you never saw that event directly, that would be the reasonable explanation. Why would you choose the unknown explanation? You've never seen undetectable Martians. You've never seen them create, produce anything. 
So therefore, it's not because they're impossible. It's because they're not known. That's why you choose the uh, human uh, explanation as the more reasonable one. But the next thing that you do in proper historical procedure is to identify the proper object of explanation. That's where Dr. Craig makes his uh, fundamental blunder in history. Because he would like to have you believe that the facts are, you know, what he cataloged. Sure, you know, you ask an atheist, how do you explain the postmortem appearance of Jesus? Well, he's won the debate. Of course, well, I don't know how would you explain the postmortem appearance of Jesus. That's not the fact. I come from a background in archaeology where we deal with artifacts, and we have to explain the origin of the artifact, the event that created the artifact. The artifact in history must always be something verified. You've got to start with a fact. Something you can verify is there. In the case of the resurrection, what can we verify is there? The object of explanation is not the resurrection, folks. It's the stories of the resurrection. That's the object of explanation. So once you see that the object of explanation are the stories of the resurrection, not the resurrection, not the postmortem appearances, you can see how his methodology fails. Because you can see the burial of Jesus is not a fact. The existence of a story of the burial of Jesus is the fact. The empty tomb, that's not a fact. The story of the empty tomb is the fact. That's what you're trying to explain. How did you get the story? The existence of postmortem appearances, that's not a fact. We don't know that happened, but we know that there's a story of postmortem appearances. That's what we're trying to explain. And the origin of the disciples' uh, faith in the bodily resurrection, that's not a fact either. We don't know that the original disciples believed it or not. All he's telling you is that he believes the stories that the disciples believe. He believes the stories that there were postmortem appearances. He's just basically believing the say-so of these gospel writers. Now, since you know that the stories are the proper object of explanation, then you, all you have to do is follow the same procedure you follow with the baby on the doorstep. You would choose the known explanation over the unknown one. Well, do we have known explanations for the generation of stories? We certainly do. We have hallucinations. Can hallucinations produce stories of resurrections? Yes. Somebody could hallucinate. They saw somebody alive that was dead. They write the story. You just produced a story of a resurrection. That's a known phenomenon for producing stories of resurrections. Can deductive error do it? Sure. Somebody can deduct this. X should happen, therefore X did happen. And I'll show you a very clear example where Dr. Craig does that. Can visions do it? Yes. Can political motives do it? Yes. Economic motives? Literary phenomena? All those things can cause the production of stories of the resurrection. And that's the proper object of explanation. Now you go to the other side. What he wants you to believe is this unknown causes, cause the story of the resurrection. Well, what is the unknown one? Well, he wants you to believe that an actual resurrection produced the story of a resurrection. Have you ever seen that? Have you ever seen a resurrection produce the story of a resurrection? I have not. Why am I going to use an unknown cause to explain something when I have ten known causes to explain the same thing? It doesn't deal with the problem of equifinality. 
where two or more processes can result in the same end product. And you have to be particular. Particularism is a method in history. You have to go on a case-by-case basis. He would like sometimes to quote Colin Hamer and catalog all the things Luke got right and then extrapolate from that that if historian is right about A, B, and C, he's right about D through Z. We don't do history that way, and I can show you specifically why we don't. So the resurrection has to be judged on its own merits. And I hope that we have some agreed-upon beliefs. Because part of the reason he mentioned the papyri and Rubochelis, he knows very full well. He, he can't preempt this, because he knows full well that the earliest documents we have for the resurrection do not come from the time of Jesus, folks. There are no existing hard copies from the time of Jesus. Nothing. Zero. Unless you want to argue for P46 or something, Kim's proposal that it's dated earlier, and we can do that. There are no manuscripts, even from the first century, about the resurrection. Nothing, no hard copies. The first manuscript of anything that we call the New Testament is called P52. It dates to the second century. It doesn't have a story of a resurrection. So you don't, you don't find it in the second century either. You have to go to the third century. And this is just a scrap. This is P50. This is all we have from the second century. Now, this is his problem. He knows full well that there's a gap, you see, because here is the supposed resurrection event. Here is where we have the first documents about the resurrection event. Now, tell me, Dr. Craig, how are you going to get from here to here? That's the problem. Because anything can happen between the supposed event and the first copies of anything. We know from P66, that's why it's very important to know the papyri. Because we know there were hundreds of corrections made already. Do you know he doesn't even believe that all of Mark, as most Bibles might have it, like the King James Version, it's not original either? Verses 9 through 20? A lot of things can happen in between the first century and the third century, folks. How is he going to convince us that, yes, there's the story over here, actually reflect something over here. How did this guy over here verify that that happened? You see? But that may not be the worst of it for Dr. Craig because do you know that he may not believe in every resurrection story in his own Bible? Maybe I misunderstood you, Dr. Craig. But in your debate, in one of your (coughs) um, debates, you indicated that you did not think Matthew 27, 52 to 53 was historical, literally. Let's read that story, and let's see if his historical criteria can tell the difference. Matthew 27 says that when Jesus died around that time, the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints that had fallen asleep were raised and this resurrection, and his resurrection, after his resurrection, they came out of the tombs and entered the holy city and appeared to many. Dr. Craig may not believe that's true. So, Dr. Craig, you wanted specifics. You asked for specifics. I'm going to give you some. 
Do you believe that Matthew 27, 52 to 53 represents a literal historical event? Yes or no? Why or why not? Dr. Craig will now have 12 minutes for his rebuttal. You'll remember that I began my opening speech by saying that we both face a burden of proof in tonight's debate. Uh, the resurrection fact or fiction? Now, Dr. Avalos, in his last speech, said that he will defend the position that there's not enough evidence to show that the resurrection is a fact. But notice that does not discharge his burden of proof to show that it is a fiction. There are many events. In fact, when you think about it, most events in history, which you cannot prove to be historical, but that doesn't mean, therefore, they did not occur. Interestingly enough, Dr. Avalos recognizes this fact in his book, Se Puede Saber Si Dios Existe. He says, all of this doesn't mean that such an act didn't occur, merely that you cannot know that such a thing occurred based solely on the written accounts. But that's a position that's compatible with Christianity. As I say, most Christians don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus based on historical accounts. So just the fact that you couldn't prove the resurrection doesn't show it's a fiction. He's got to do more to establish uh, that it is fictional than he's done so far in tonight's debate. Now, first I said there are four facts which are accepted by the majority of scholars today who have studied the resurrection of Jesus. And Dr. Avalos' response to this was remarkable. We actually got very few specifics. I didn't see any refutation in any of the several points that I raised. Instead, we got general comments like, well, these aren't facts, rather the story is a fact. But look, when I say these are facts, what I mean is that the story is factually accurate. And that is what the majority of New Testament scholars believe about the burial, the empty tomb, the post-mortem appearances, and so forth. Namely, that these stories are true, and I gave arguments to show that they were factual in that way. That's the issue. Then Dr. Avalos remarkably says, but we don't have enough early manuscripts of the New Testament to attest its uh, accuracy. Now, what he seems to be suggesting here is that somehow these facts are called into question because of the textual corruption of the New Testament. But Dr. Avalos knows that the New Testament is the best attested book in ancient history, both in terms of the number of manuscripts and in terms of the nearness of those manuscripts to the date of original composition. We have over 5,000 manuscripts of the New Testament in Greek alone, and these come to within a gap of 100 to 150 years after the original. Compare that with the works of Plato. For the dialogues of Plato, we have only seven manuscripts, and the gap between them and the original composition is 1,200 years. For the works of Aristotle, we have only five extant manuscripts separated by 1,000 years from the date of the composition. For the annals of Tacitus in the first six chapters, there is one manuscript 
and it is separated by 750 years from the original. Yet no scholar would doubt, seriously, the text of Plato, Aristotle, or Tacitus as being totally corrupted and worthless. In fact, the text of the New Testament that we have today that I, I showed you before is over 99% accurate. Sir Frederick Kenyon, in his book Bible and Archaeology, has said that the last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down to us substantially as they were written has now been removed. But secondly, I want to say about this, if Dr. Avalos were correct about this, it would undermine his own work on health care systems in the ancient Near East. You see, Dr. Avalos' sources for ancient health care systems are vastly inferior to the New Testament. Indeed, ironically, his primary source for early Christian health care is the New Testament. Several critics in reviews of Dr. Avalos' work have noted this. For example, uh, David Martin, in his review, he's from Yale University, says there are problems with Avalos' choice of sources. For Christianity, he mainly limits himself remarkably to a reading of the canonical Gospels. These few texts are supposed to suffice to portray the Christian healthcare system. And Felix Just, in his review in the Catholic Biblical Quarterly, says that Avalos presents no direct evidence for his thesis except for the New Testament stories of Jesus himself healing people. So if Dr. Avalos says that the New Testament is so corrupted that we can no longer believe its historical credibility, he undermines his own work, which I don't think he would surely want to do. So the fact of the matter is that there are important issues about the resurrection, but friends, the textual purity of the New Testament is not one of them, honestly. You can be confident that the text of the New Testament, as you read it today, is substantially over 99% accurate, the text as it was originally written by Paul, John, Luke, or whomever. And that's just a fact. Now, what about Matthew 27? Is that historical or not? Approaching that as a historian rather than a Christian believer, I would have to say one doesn't know. I don't think you can prove that to be historical. And so I don't include that in my evidence. But I do think that these four facts that I've listed can be demonstrated historically. And with that conclusion, the majority of, the majority of New Testament scholars, whether Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, or secular, also agree. Well, apart from that, I saw no specific refutation of the burial, the empty tomb, the resurrection appearances, or the origin of the disciples' belief in Jesus' resurrection. So we come to the question, what is the best explanation of this? I maintain that it is the hypothesis God raised Jesus from the dead. Now, Dr. Avalos responds, well, Dr. Craig is a naturalist when it comes to other religions, but not Christianity. Not at all. I'm willing to include any explanations in the pool of live options. I just maintain that when judged by those six criteria, the resurrection hypothesis is the best explanation. Now, Dr. Avalos then says, but a fact is only something that is verifiable by the five senses or by logic. His claim here is that the only statements which are rational to believe are either verifiable by the five senses, logically demonstrable, or implied by statements which are. This is a statement of classical foundationalism or evidentialism. This was popular back in the late 19th, early 20th century, but it's come on very hard times among epistemologists and philosophers in recent years. Two reasons for this. Number one, it's an overly restrictive definition of rationality or knowledge. 
If you adopt that theory of knowledge, we would have no mathematical knowledge, because that's not verifiable by the five senses or deducible from logic, no ethical knowledge, because moral values, right and wrong, cannot be demonstrated in that way, no aesthetic knowledge, the good cannot be verified by the five senses, neither can the beautiful. There would be no metaphysical knowledge. We would have no knowledge that there is really an external world rather than you be uh, a brain in a vat being stimulated by a mad scientist with electrodes to think you're here in this hall hearing the lecture tonight. We would have no uh, rational beliefs about the past or the veridicality of our memory beliefs. We would have no knowledge that there are other minds because that cannot be verified by the five senses or demonstrated by logic. Finally, we would have no scientific knowledge, either because knowledge is per or science is permeated with unprovable assumptions. So that what was realized is that this classical foundationalism leads to an unlivable skepticism. It would not only deny theological knowledge, but of the vast tracts of human knowledge we have today. But secondly, and this is completely damning, is that it turns out that this theory of knowledge is self-refuting. You see, you ask yourself the question, how does the skeptic know that knowledge is limited to statements verifiable by the five senses or provable by logic? Dr. Avalos claims to have a knowledge of the following statement, a statement which is unverifiable by the five senses or unprovable by logic cannot be known. But is that statement verifiable by the five senses? No. Is it demonstrable by logic? No then it cannot be known. And thus this empiricist epistemology that he's offered as a basis for denying the resurrection is simply untenable and therefore has been widely abandoned in philosophy today as both overly restrictive and self-refuting. But Dr. Avalos says there's another principle involved here, namely you should only prefer explanations based on known causes. Two responses. First of all, I agree that we should prefer explanations based on known causes. That's the same thing as the criterion of not being ad hoc. We should first consider explanations in terms of entities which we know to exist. But this preference can't be hardened into a dogmatic and inviolable presupposition. Otherwise, it would destroy scientific progress. We should never have discovered quarks, black holes, cosmic inflation, and so forth on this epistemology. Sometimes positing a new entity is justified in virtue of the increased explanatory power, explanatory scope, and so forth that it will bring. And so it is, I believe, with the resurrection. Secondly, I think we do have independent evidence of God's existence, so that anybody who is already a theist when he approaches the evidence for the resurrection, has the explanatory resources for that event. The problem for Dr. Avalos is that he's self-confessedly an atheist. He says in his uh, article in Free Thought Today, I am an atheist. The logical consequence is that miracles go down the drain. But you see, most people are not atheists. If you believe in God, then it is not ad hoc to explain the resurrection as an act uh, of God. And I lay out my reasons for believing in God in my book with Walter Sinnott Armstrong, God, a debate between a Christian and an atheist. So maybe next time, if I come back to ISU, we can be debating the existence of God. Given the existence of God, I do not think it is ad hoc to explain the resurrection in terms of God's raising Jesus from the dead. Finally, what about hallucinations? 
Well, I don't think hallucinations are a plausible counter-explanation. First of all, the uh, number and diversity of the circumstances of the appearances preclude hallucinations. Uh, Jesus didn't appear just one time, but many times, not just to individuals, but to groups, not under just one circumstance, but under many circumstances, not just at one locale, but at many locales, not just to believers, but to doubters, unbelievers, and enemies. It exceeds anything in the case books for psychological disturbances and hallucinations. Secondly, even if they had hallucinated, it would not have explained the origin of the disciples' belief in the resurrection. At most, visions of Jesus would have led them to think that Jesus was now exalted in heaven at the right hand of God. It wouldn't have led to the belief in the resurrection from the dead, which ran contrary to Jewish beliefs. And finally, number three, it can't explain the empty tomb. In order to explain the empty tomb, you have to conjoin some independent hypothesis to the hallucination hypothesis, because uh, you can't have a full explanatory scope with hallucinations alone. The resurrection hypothesis has greater explanatory scope and is therefore to be preferred. So for all of these reasons, I Please conclude your remarks. that the best explanation of the facts is the one that the eyewitnesses gave. God raised Jesus from the dead. notice he didn't answer my question. Do you believe that Matthew 27, 52 to 53 is literally historically true? He knows he can't answer it because his whole methodology would fall apart once he did. Why don't you believe one story and believe another? It's the same uh, Bible, the same Gospels. Why didn't you answer the question? But let me tell you something about trying to defeat empirical rationalism with empirical rationalism. You can't. Anytime you use logic, you're using rationalism. Anytime you use and uh, you use a, a datum and point to a datum, you're using empiricism. Therefore, you can't use empirical rationalism to argue against empirical rationalism, Dr. Craig. And very simply this, I'm taking a lot of your stuff about how to do history. You said, we should then test and uh, test worldviews by their logical consistency and by how well they fit the facts of known experience. Isn't that what I'm saying? This is what you said. We can nonetheless join naturalists, and this is in your edited book, we can then not, nonetheless join naturalists in holding that empirical scientific methods are typically reliable. Well, that's what I'm doing. And you said, now I admit that as a methodological procedure, you ought to seek natural explanations first. Isn't that what I said? The problem still is that he wants to make the post-resurrection, the post-mortem appearances the object of explanation. I'm saying, no, they're not. It's the stories of them. How do you explain the stories? Well, seek natural explanations first. What are the natural explanations? A whole bunch. I can admit ten things over the actual resurrection. But let me tell you why. Dr. Craig doesn't want you to know why he doesn't believe in Matthew 27. Let's look at that again. Matthew 27:52 says, The tombs also were open, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. After his resurrection, they came out of the tombs and entered the holy city and appeared to many. Let's 
After uh, his debate with John Dominic Crossan, he quoted Dr. Miller. As follows, Dr. Miller tries to cast doubt on the historicity of the resurrection narratives by arguing that Matthew felt free to add to Mark's gospel the story of the resurrection of the saints, a story which Matthew did not take literally, but saw as a figurative expression of the apocalyptic significance of Jesus' death. Dr. Miller's interpretation of this passage strikes me as quite persuasive, and probably few conservative scholars would treat the story as historical. But why not? Well, he tells us. For he, Dr. Miller, has argued that the passage should not be taken literally precisely because of the apocalyptic language coloring the story. That's why that's not historical. But the empty tomb narrative is remarkable just for its simplicity and lack of apocalyptic embellishment. So let's look at his historical criteria for why he takes, say, Mark 16 literally and historically, and not Matthew 27:52. If you boil it down, it appears to be that a simple story is historically credible. But what, what does simple mean? Is brevity the essence of simplicity, Dr. Craig? Because if that is the case, the one in Matthew 50, 27, 52, and 53 is much briefer than the eight verses in Mark 16 that you take as part of the original text. And then you apparently believe that an apocalyptic story is not historically credible. It's historically incredible. So let's look at what he might mean. What does simple mean? If it's not brevity, what does he mean? It means, ladies and gentlemen, it's the one that has the least supernatural elements, apparently. He's a naturalist when it comes to that story. An apocalyptic, why does he regard that as unacceptable, as not Something to be believed, that's, that's supposed to be figurative. Because he believes apocalypticism has too much supernaturalism, ladies and gentlemen. Now, when you look at what he said about 1 Corinthians 15, he made a big issue about we must take that historically because of this verb, agaring, to rise. He says the very fact that the verb... Agaring seems to imply that the grave was left empty. The two verbs, agaring and anistani, are used synonymously throughout the New Testament. Both verbs also mean to raise and upright. There was no other kind of resurrection. He uses that verb to argue for the historicity of the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15. Well, what is the verb used over in Matthew 27? It's agaring. They were raised. 1 Corinthians 15, 4 to him, that's historical. Passive sense, same verb. Mark 16, 6, that's historical. But Matthew 27, 52, even though it's the same verb, he says, indicates physicality, not historical. Why is that, Dr. Craig? You can see Dr. Craig is not treating equally declarative statements the same. He was raised on the third day according to scriptures in 1 Corinthians 54. That's historical. Mark 16, 6, he was raised. Oh, that's historical. Matthew 27, 52, many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Not historical. And it gets worse for him because he makes another issue of the use of the word soma, body. He says 1 Corinthians 15 must mean physical 
because of this word soma. And he quotes Gundry saying, Gundry succeeds admirably in carrying his main point that soma is never used in the New Testament to denote the whole person in isolation from his physical body. But it is much more used to denote the physical body itself or the man with special emphasis on the physical body. Well, what do you have in Matthew 27? Many bodies, somata. The very word, he says, indicates physicality. It's in Matthew 27, but not in 15.4 of 1 Corinthians, the one he wants you to take physical. Well, why is that, Dr. Craig? Well, what makes that story in Matthew 27 an apocalypse, uh, non-historical? Well, apocalyptic embellishment, he tells us. Well, what does that mean? How does embellishment differ from additional historical detail? Is he a priori also excluding historical whatever has an apocalyptic context? Because, you know, you could also say all of Mark is in an apocalyptic context. Why don't you just take then Mark 16? Figuratively, just like you did in Matthew 27. Because you said it was because of apocalyptic embellishment. Go read Mark 13 and see how much apocalyptic embellishment there is. <clears throat> so yes, Dr. Craig, there are two of you. You're a supernaturalist when it comes to the stories you favor, a naturalist when it comes to the stories you don't favor. Now, let me get to Another thing I said I was going to do was to show that what he calls facts sometimes are not, that he invents facts. He tells us that James, the brother of Jesus, was killed. And he uses that as evidence that since he was a disbeliever before, now he must be a believer. He must have seen something. And he quotes Josephus. He says, we learn from Josephus that James was eventually martyred for his faith in Jesus Christ during a lapse in the civil government of the mid-60s. Is that what Josephus said? That's not what Josephus said when I read him. This is what Josephus actually said. It says, Ananus, the high priest at that point, thought he had favorable opportunity. And so he convened the judges of the Sanhedrin and brought before them a man named James, the brother of Jesus, who was called the Christ, and certain others. He accused them of having transgressed the law and delivered them up to be stoned. Nothing there about dying for faith in Jesus. It says it was his brother. He didn't die for his brother. Didn't say anything of the kind. He just proves how easy it is to invent traditions. Now he has Josephus saying something he didn't. See how traditions grow? But it's going to get worse for him because he still does not explain how he gets from the third century when the first documents we have of the resurrection over to the first. But he tells us how he does it. He says that the phrase on the first day of the week is the key. And he says the fact that Mark uses on the first day of the week that phrase confirms that his tradition is very old, even antedating the third day reckoning. This fact is confirmed by the linguistic character of the phrase in question. For although the first day of the week is very awkward in Greek, when translated back into Aramaic, it's perfectly smooth and normal. This suggests that the empty tomb tradition reaches all the way back to the original language spoken by the disciples. Well, I've taught Aramaic. I've taken Aramaic dialectology, and I was traumatized by that statement. So, Dr. Craig, 
You wanted specifics. You told me that that phrase confirms that you can get back to the disciples' time. And you said that when translated back into Aramaic, that phrase, the first day of the week, is perfectly smooth and normal. So I have a couple of questions for you. One, what would on the first day of the week be in perfectly smooth and normal Aramaic, Dr. Craig? And two, what specific Aramaic text did you consult in order to make that translation? You remember I challenged Dr. Avalos to discharge his share of the burden of proof tonight, to show us that either the resurrection narratives are false or give us some better explanation of them. He hasn't done that in tonight's debate. At best, he's tried to neutralize the ground, to show there's no historical evidence for the resurrection, but that doesn't show that, therefore, this is a fiction. So he still has yet to bear his burden of proof in tonight's debate. Now, have I been able to succeed in bearing my share of the burden? Well, I argued first that there are four facts that have been established about Jesus of Nazareth. And he dropped his point about textual purity in the last work. Uh, we saw that the text of the New Testament is 99% uh, established. And that, indeed, denying the text of the New Testament would undermine his own work in ancient healthcare systems. But now he says, what about this problem with Matthew 27? Do you believe it's historical or not? Well, I, again, I'll repeat, I'm not sure. It depends on whether or not this is meant to be apocalyptic imagery by Matthew or a real, actual event. And I'm open-minded about this. Now, he says, but it is the same verb, a gay reign, that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 15 to describe the resurrection. And it uses the word soma, body, the same word that you use uh, or describe in 1 Corinthians 15 for Christ's resurrection. Well, obviously, but the point is not that Egerin and Soma show the historicity of these events. Rather, it means that what is being described is a physical resurrection. And that is the only kind of resurrection that Judaism knew. This has been demonstrated anew by N.T. Wright in his massive study, The Resurrection of the Son of God, released last summer. This is what Wright says. Let us be quite clear at this point. We shall see that when the early Christians said resurrection... They meant it in the sense that it bore both in paganism, which denied it, and Judaism, which affirmed it. Resurrection meant bodily resurrection, and that is what the early Christians affirmed. So these verbs go to show that when a person speaks of resurrection, you're talking about something that happens to the body. You're not talking about uh, uh, the immortality of the soul or something of that sort. But that doesn't decide the issue of whether or not the language being used here is apocalyptic and symbolic or not. Now, he says, well, what does it mean to say that something is apocalyptic? It just means it's more supernatural. No, no, not at all. Apocalyptic language will use figurative speech that isn't meant to be taken literally, like the sun turning dark and the moon turning to blood, or in the book of Revelation, dragons crawling up out of the oceans and so forth. When I was a young Christian, I used to think that the book of Revelation meant that actual seven-headed beasts would crawl out of the seas someday and destroy the earth. What I came to understand is that in apocalyptic literature, these are symbols or figures of speech for, for example, nation-states in the book of Revelation. And I'm frankly not sure whether Matthew means us to understand his resurrection of the saints uh, as uh, literal historical uh, information or as symbolic or figurative. 
But what's quite clear, as I said, is that in the mark and account of the empty tomb, there is no apocalyptic language. When I say that this is simple and shows no signs of legendary embellishment, I mean that there is an utter absence of theological and apologetical motifs that characterize later legendary accounts, like Jesus being the king, uh, Jesus uh, raising uh, the, uh, the, the people in uh, uh, the intermediate state from the dead along with him, with his triumph over the enemies and so forth. It's a stark and simple historical account. It's not cast in apocalyptic imagery. So I think Dr. Avalos is simply quite wrong in saying that uh, the case stands or falls on this uh, single passage in Matthew. Nothing in my case depends upon how you treat that, either historically or apocalyptically in image, uh, as an image. Now, he says, but what about this point about the first day of the week? This is an argument I give in my book that I didn't use tonight to show the earliness of the Markan account. The Markan account uses a phrase in Greek, the first day of the week, ton sabaton, which is awkward in Greek, but when you translate it back into Aramaic, it is perfectly smooth and legitimate Aramaic or Hebrew. ton sabaton, when translated into Aramaic, is bachath b'shabatha, and this, uh, he asked for the text where this is, uh, can be found. In the second Targum of Esther, chapter 2, verse 9, the sh same phrase is used. You can also find it in Hebrew as b'achad b'shabat. Uh, and this is awkward in Greek because mia is a cardinal rather than an ordinal number. It means the one rather than the first. And uh, sabaton is the word for the Sabbath not the word for the week, and yet it's used here to be the first day of the week. But in Aramaic or Hebrew, this is perfectly good Aramaic or Hebrew to say b'chaf b'shabatha. So uh, I think this simply supports my point and shows the primitiveness of the Markan tradition that we're in contact here with the original language spoken by the disciples. Well, he hasn't responded to the facts concerning Jesus' burial, the discovery of his empty tomb, with respect to the appearances, he says, but the appearance to James in Paul's list doesn't say that uh, or isn't based upon James's dying for his faith. But the very passage he read from Josephus, where it refers to James, does say that during a lapse in the civil government, the high priest convened the Sanhedrin and they stoned James to death. Why? Well, because James was the leader of the New Testament church, as we know from the book of Acts. So he was martyred for his faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because James, the younger brother of Jesus, saw a resurrection appearance of Jesus, as Paul says, and that brought his conversion. This is one of the most powerful evidences for the resurrection. I mean, most of us have brothers. What would it take to convince you that your brother is the Lord so that you would be ready to die for that belief as James was? Hans Grass, a great uh, New Testament scholar from Germany, has said that one of the greatest proofs of the resurrection of Jesus is the conversion of James, the younger brother of Jesus. Well, then the question is, what's the best explanation of these facts? Um, and I think we saw that Dr. Avalos's own empirical rationalism is overly restrictive. It would deny all sorts of knowledge that we have. Secondly, it's self-refuting. He says you can't use something to refute itself. Sure you can. It's self-referentially incoherent. That is to say, if it's false, it's false. If it's true, it's false. It's like somebody saying, I cannot speak a single word of English. You see, if, it, if it's true, it's false. 
Uh, in the same way, his epistemology is simply self-refuting. That's why it's overwhelmingly rejected today. So you cannot restrict rational belief to just verifiable statements and logically demonstrable statements. I would argue that belief in the resurrection of Jesus is what Dr. Avalos calls a reasonable belief. It is inferred on the basis of the evidence. He did not respond to my point that uh, his principle about only appealing to known causes is simply the same as saying hypothesis shouldn't be ad hoc, and I agreed with that, but you can't harden it into a dogmatic presupposition or you inhibit science. And secondly, that we do have independent evidence for the existence of God. So if you believe in God, then you are explaining the resurrection in terms of an entity that you believe or know to exist, namely God. And as a theist who has good reasons to believe in God, I think I'm therefore perfectly rational in believing what the original disciples proclaimed, that Please God your remarks. raised Jesus from the dead. Well, again, he's not answering my direct question, and when he did, it's wrong. Because what he quoted you in Aramaic, it's not from the time of the disciples, which is what he said it would do. I wanted him to show me the Aramaic of the time of the disciples, just like he said that phrase would be. I said that what I would do is to show that what his so-called facts are no such thing. that not, They're not based on substance. This is not the first time Dr. Craig has used bad Aramaic to make arguments. In his book on 1989, very well documented. If you're a student of Campus Crusade for Christ, you'll be impressed. If you're a linguist, you'll be traumatized. Because there, in the space of eight pages, he gets almost every Aramaic term wrong that he uses to support the resurrection. On page four, we talked about the Aramaic term for receiving a tradition. And then he makes the case that, therefore, in 1 Corinthians 15, 4, we can trust it. He gets part of that term wrong. Page 4, where he talks about uh, the same thing. He gets that wrong. Page 8, where he talks about the verb for appear in Aramaic. Because he wants to make the case that Jesus appeared physically, he gets that wrong. But that doesn't compare to pages 11 to 13, where the word Messiah, the central word, gets it wrong 13 times in Hebrew and Aramaic. Because anybody past the first week in Aramaic would know there's a difference between the kof and the kof, the he and the het, the vav and the nun. These are different phonemes. When you use them in the same words, they're going to be wrong, Dr. Craig. And any good Aramaic knows there are no attested examples of first day of the week or any examples expressing days of the week in any biblical Aramaic or in all of Middle Aramaic going by Fitzmyers chronology, Dr. Craig. So how can you know what the first day of the week would have been in Jesus' time? Number two, there is not enough evidence to say what the Aramaic phrase would have been. What he's quoting you is later. He doesn't tell you that. Indeed, the attested dialects of Aramaic from the first 1,000 years after Jesus have a different construction, and he read it to you in Aramaic, and it's a different construction. Of course, if you don't know Aramaic, you're not going to see that. Well, let's go back. Let's look at that phrase again. He says that this is what proves that that third century man goes back to the Jesus' Jesus's time. That phrase, in the first day of the week. Sure, it is awkward in Aramaic. It is abnormal. 
precisely because. I mean, literally translated, be one in the weeks. The Greek would normally use the word first, the first day of the week, but instead it's using one, one of the weeks. The second thing that's odd is Sabbath is plural. It's one in the Sabbath to, to say the first day of the week. That is odd. But does that mean that comes from the language of the disciples? Does that mean we can trace it back to the disciples? No, it doesn't. Why? Because it's in the Greek Bible, Dr. Craig. We know that. Psalm 23, 1. You have it there. You have the cardinal number one, and you have the plural, Sabbath. Sabaton. So why are you saying it goes back to the disciples' time when it's already in the Greek tradition? We know Mark was using because he quotes from the Greek tradition whenever he quotes the Bible. You've got it from anywhere. It's from the Greek tradition. Any good Aramaic knows that. Well, why does he say things like that? Acts 27. You see the same phrase there. It's not necessarily early. And let's look at the attested usages. He quoted you from a Targum. <clears throat> and yes, you have it also in Bereshit Ravah, commentary in Genesis 11.8. But what he doesn't tell you is it doesn't go back to the time of the disciples. Those are from medieval times. He's using medieval Aramaic to try to get it back to the disciples' time. Now, is that history to you? I'm surprised he didn't look at the Syriac. Because Syriac, you know, translated Mark 16.2 into Syriac. And Syriac is a dialect of Aramaic. What does it have there? Well, what he read to you, he doesn't explain to you that it has a preposition, a shavah. It's literally in one, in the Sabbath. That preposition, the, Dr. Craig, it's not in Mark 16.2. It doesn't have a preposition in there. Why are you saying that would be perfectly good Aramaic when you're quoting Aramaic? It's not from the disciples' time. It's from nearly medieval times. So again, this is a case where lack of knowledge of the primary sources in the languages leads to fallacious facts. What do you call facts for no such thing? There is no such word as first day of the week in the Aramaic of Jesus' time. And he could not quote you a text from that time, as you, you saw. <clears throat> we will now have a time for the audience to ask questions. Uh, the protocol that we're going to use is there are uh, one, there's one microphone on each side of uh, the auditorium, and we're going to ask people to line up at those uh, microphones if they wish to ask a question. Um, if uh, we have a large number, we may try to give priority to uh, students. Um, we're also going to try to make sure we have an equal number of questions for uh, each speaker. So I'll uh, go in blocks of two. Uh, taking one question for each speaker and then move to the other side of the auditorium. Uh, while those of you who may want to ask questions are moving to the microphones, let me also uh, remind you that you received comment cards as you were coming in. If you have any reactions to uh, today's debate, uh, I would encourage you to fill those out and hand those in as you exit. Um, I would also remind you that there are uh, going to be uh, CDs available of this debate if you'd like to reserve one. Uh, those are available for uh, $2 after uh, the debate is over. 
Um, I would ask you uh, to quiet down again uh, and uh, try to give our full attention to the speakers uh, and to the questioners. So as you are asking your questions, I would remind you to keep them brief. Uh, if they get too long, I will uh, cut you off to make sure that there's enough time for other people to uh, ask more questions uh, before our time is up. Go ahead. I'd first like to thank you for coming, but I'd like to question you on your tactics. I kept tally of the number of logical fallacies you committed, and it was 25, the highlights of which were four occurrences of shifting the burden of proof, three occurrences of argumentum ad populi, and I'll skip over all the others to get to the highlight. Within 60 seconds of standing at the podium, you committed argumentum ad hominem, the equivalent of a five-year-old calling names. Shame on you. All right. Shame on yeah, you. Yeah, shame on me. <laughs> uh, I, I'm also a professional philosopher as well as a New Testament theologian. I understand logic. Well, uh, obviously, you have no self-control. Allow the speaker to answer the question, please. Um, Shame on you. I, Will these, the audience please yeah, be quiet so the speaker can I, I don't think I committed any of these informal logical fallacies. Uh, I think all of my arguments are carefully formulated according to the canons of, of logical inference. I do want to say something, though, about the ad hominem point, because uh, I felt very uncomfortable about opening as I did, but I felt I had to do it in light of what I had seen in this earlier debate by way of preempting that happening in tonight's debate, because in front of an untrained audience of undergraduates, misimpressions can arise, and so that was why I did that. I, I, I didn't like doing that, but I felt it was necessary in order that we conduct this debate according to professional rules of, of etiquette and decorum. But I don't think that was ad hominem, because I wasn't saying that what Dr. Avalos said was false. Uh, because of anything about him. That's what ad hominem means, is that you say a position is false by attacking the person, and I never suggested anything of that sort. So um, I think that the, the charge is not correct. You tried oh, to... Uh, your question's been answered. Um, I don't... Is this microphone on? Yeah. Uh, who's, the, who's your question for? Yes. Um, for uh, Dr. Craig? Okay, go ahead. Or uh, the purpose or the value of any explanation is to reduce the level of confusion and the amount of mystery that the alleged facts seem to entail. However, to invoke the supernatural, whether it be God or miracles or whatever, a supernatural agency in a proposed explanation is to bring infinitely more mystery infinitely more confusion into the explanation than could possibly have been present in the original facts. So it seems to me that by invoking the supernatural to explain the alleged resurrection, you have brought more mystery into the uh, resurrection than the natural hypotheses that were detailed by Professor Avalos. All right, that, that's a good question. Um, when you say that the purpose of explanation is to reduce mystery, I think what that means is to reduce the mystery about that particular item which is to be explained. But it doesn't mean to reduce sort of the overall mystery. 
Uh, indeed, in invoking the, a new explanation, you might create new mysteries that then opens up new questions. And great examples of this would be quantum theory in physics. Um, in order to explain certain sorts of experimental results, we need to invoke things like quantum indeterminacy, quarks, maybe strings, all sorts of high-level theoretical entities in physics, which as any quantum physicist will tell you, invoke levels of mystery that just boggle the mind. Nevertheless, you have good reason for believing in these posited entities as the causes or explanations of the particular phenomenon in question. So I would agree with you. Positing the existence of God raises all kinds of different interesting questions uh, that I, as a philosopher, am extremely interested in, but that doesn't do anything to suggest that this is not the best explanation of the facts of the empty tomb, the origin of the Christian faith, and the resurrection appearances. When I compare it to these other naturalistic explanations, I find that they all are deficient in their explanatory power, explanatory scope, plausibility, and, and other objective criteria that one uses to determine the best explanation. Uh, could I have the next person in line here with a question for Dr. Avalos? Yeah, that's me. Go. Um, I think the actual question here tonight was, um, is the Christian faith fact or fiction? Now, as a Christian, if you, we believe in God. If we believe in God, we believe in the Word of God. If we believe in the Word of God, then we believe in the resurrection. Now, you don't believe in God, so you don't believe in the Word of God, so you don't believe in the resurrection. So, what is the point of life? Uh, please be quiet so the speaker can answer the question. The point of life is to live as healthy as possible in healthy relationships. To me, the basis of all life is good relationships. Fellow human beings, wife, kids, whatever. That's the point of life. Can I have the next question from this side? I have a question for Dr. Craig. First of all, let me uh, thank you for your wonderful exposition. I thought it was very well argued. Uh, I myself am a Jew, and I have no problem with mystery. I do have a great deal of problem with biblical literalism, like this young lady who calls the Bible the word of God. This, to me as a Jew, is idolatry, because only God is God, not a book. We are surrounded by biblical literalists. Obviously, Dr. Craig, you are not one because you uh, don't take everything. You believe certain things are legendary. Uh, probably, the, uh, I would imagine, the myth of the uh, creation of the world in six days, I would imagine you think is a myth, as I do. However, my question is this. Uh, as you realize... Um, uh, the Gospel of Mark, according to most uh, New Testament scholars, is the only one that was actually written before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. The oldest editions of the Gospel of Mark do not include uh, descriptions of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, but end with the women coming to the empty tomb. They see it, and uh, a young man is there, not an angel, a young man is there who tells them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He goes before you into Galilee. 
Go therefore, telling the disciples that he is risen. Something like that, I believe. And uh, the gospel ends uh, that they run away and they say nothing to anyone. The end. Then there are uh, later additions that come along. I want to also point out that there are, along with this um, mystery of the empty tomb, we also have a very mysterious uh, thing in the post-resurrection appearances described by uh, Matthew, John, and uh, Mark, uh, the writers of those Gospels. Uh, John, uh, they all share this in common. The people do not recognize Jesus. Mary Magdalene, uh, according to the Gospel of John, in the garden, mistakes Jesus for the gardener and talks to him at quite length before she realizes that it is Jesus himself. The disciples who walk with Jesus on the, on the road to Emmaus uh, the day or two after the, re the, uh, the supposed resurrection, they also do not recognize Jesus, but think of him as a stranger on the road. They do not recognize him all day. Did you some of your question? Yes, I'm please. May I proceed? Uh, yes, please sum up. There are three resurrection stories that I wanted to ask you about. The second, the, the, they also do not recognize him until they invite him to dinner. Several hours later, he breaks the bread, uh, and then they recognize him as Jesus, and he disappears magically. The third uh, 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 one I want to talk about, I'm not sure if it's Matthew or Luke, uh, but uh, the disciples are fishing, and again they see a mysterious stranger upon the shore whom they do not recognize. Uh, and then only uh, when he says, dip your nets into the water uh, and come up with a full uh, uh, load of fish, do they recognize him as Jesus. How do you understand these mysterious misrecognitions of Jesus if he's truly physically and bodily resurrected? Are you sure they're not just strangers that they, um, they perhaps uh, uh, imagine to be the resurrected Lord? Or uh, perhaps even that every man is Jesus, is Christ, is the incarnation of God, perhaps. Yeah. Um, with respect to Mark 16, scholars dispute whether or not the original gospel actually ended at verse 8 or not, or whether there might be a lost ending that would include resurrection uh, appearances as well. But clearly, in any case, Mark has foreshadowed resurrection appearances in Galilee. He has the angel say to the women, tell Peter and his disciples, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him as he told you. So even if Mark doesn't choose to narrate the appearances in Galilee, he knows of them and he foreshadows them in his gospel. Now, this non-recognition motif uh, that you mentioned is very mysterious. I agree with you. I've often wondered what is going on here. Uh, we shouldn't exaggerate the extent of this. As you say, it only appears in three of the resurrection uh, stories, this non-recognition motif. And I don't think that the most plausible explanation is to say, oh, well, it was just strangers or something like that, because what that does is takes the stories to be literally historically credible enough to believe in the non-recognition motif, but then doesn't take it credible enough to believe in the other supernatural aspects of the narrative. And you can't play this kind of arbitrary pick and choose with the, the narratives. So I think what's going on there is some kind of a theological point that the evangelists are trying to make. And my suggestion, though I'm not sure about this, could be this, is that it's a way of saying to the disciples that Jesus is not continuing with them 
in the same mode of existence in the same manner that they once knew him when he walked with them in Galilee. That now as the risen and glorified Lord, they will relate to Jesus in a new way that isn't going to be that similar, familiar, earthly sort of encounter that they used to have with him. And that this non-recognition motif and the disclosure of Jesus, for example, in the breaking of the bread in Emmaus or in the miraculous catch of fish on the Sea of Tiberias is a way of saying that Jesus in his risen and exalted mode of existence will relate to the disciples in a new way. That's, that's the best I can do with that. Uh, do you believe in evolution? We need to go to the next questioner, please. Who has the next question for Dr. Avalos? Uh, you've already had uh, a lengthy question, so we're ready for the next questioner. Uh, is there another questioner for Dr. Avalos on this side? Uh, yes, um, Dr. Avalos. <clears throat> you based uh, your whole argument, or most of it, vast majority on it, on dis discrediting Dr. Craig instead of uh, discrediting the resurrection of Jesus, which is what we all came here to hear you do. Um, so, uh, I think in order to, like, redeem yourself, could you just, like, give a, uh, a few uh, explanations, um, alternative explanations to the resurrection of Jesus and why they're better than Dr. Craig's? And you really don't have to mention Dr. Craig to do that. Please, uh, please be quiet so Dr. Avalos can answer the question. If you phrase that question respectfully, I will answer it. Okay, do we have the uh, next question from this side? Uh, yeah, mine's for Dr. Craig. Uh, I found it kind of interesting that you didn't attempt to refute Dr. Avalos's point that we didn't have any documents, any real documents prior to the third century concerning the resurrection. So my question to you is, do we act, have any actual documents from, that could have been written by anyone who knew Jesus? Well, we have copies of those documents, but no, we don't have the original autographs. But please, I want to say to you, in all sincerity, this isn't where the debate lies. I did respond to that point. Textual critics have thousands of Greek manuscripts and they come in different families so that they're not all just copied from the same original. They, in the sense that there is a, an Alexandrian text, a Byzantine text, a Caesarean text, a Western text. And by comparing these with each other, textual scholars are able to reconstruct the text of the New Testament with over 99% accuracy. So please, I mean, if you want to, you know, argue about the resurrection and so forth, that's fine. But let's keep the argument where the real dispute is. The text of the New Testament isn't in serious dispute today, even by the most skeptical critics. Otherwise, you would have to explain to me where are the textual variants for the resurrection narratives? I mean, apart from the lost ending of Mark, I mean, it, what, what are you talking about here in terms of textual corruption? Um, the, the text of the New Testament uh, is substantially the same as it was originally written. And so you, you don't need to worry about the fact that this may have been corrupted uh, over the centuries. The manuscripts that we have are so early and so many that the text can be reconstructed 
with 99 percent confidence of what the original autographs, the original documents really said. So, so you don't dispute the um, dates we, at all? We uh, need to go to the next, the next questioner. Um, who has the next question for Dr. Avalos? Go ahead. Um, Dr. Avalos, uh, Dr. Craig pointed out that um, if one does not believe miracles are even possible, then he or she can only interpret the biblical documents as being made up um, that just immediately follows. Uh, and then he pointed out how your uh, empirical rationalistic epistemology or theory of knowledge, um, basically your worldview through which you interpret everything, including the biblical documents, um, does not allow for the possibility of, of knowledge in any other way. He pointed out how empirical rationalism is self-defeating. Um, you would say it's self-affirming, um, but it, you know, it affirms that it's self-defeating. Um, and uh, you never really dealt with um, his point that you can use um, you can use rationality, reason to point out uh, you know bad reason, um, just like you can use good logic to point out bad logic. Um, you never really responded to that. Um, do you have well, any way to I, kind I of follow up? I thought I did very well that? in that uh, his rational rationale could not distinguish between the historicity of Matthew 27, 52, and 53 from the historicity of Mark 16. So how is his rationally helping you establish history? Secondly, I don't think you can defeat empirical rationalism with empirical rationalism. That statement doesn't make sense. Well, by using logic, you're using rationalism. By pointing to facts, you're using empiricism. So you're affirming the very thing you're trying to deny. You can't do it. You have to use something else to defeat empirical rationalism. And the third point is, I was trying to show Dr. Craig is a naturalist. He's just a relativistic naturalist because he applies naturalism to stories he does not favor. He, he a priori, would exclude because of his theology. For example, uh, any claims made by any other god, he, he doesn't believe in other gods. So he couldn't possibly uh, take seriously the historical claims made on behalf of other gods. So he's a priori excluding other things. He's a priori excluding apocalypticism sometimes from historicity. There's all kinds of exclusions going on on his side. Okay, we have the next question from this side. Uh, yes, my question is uh, based on, on why there was a burden of proof on, on Dr. Avalos. Um, uh, we've seen throughout history that when a person dies and you dig up the body, there are bones there. If I die in 50 years, my uh, bones will uh, be there. Um, it's, it's the wild claim, and I mean, no, no uh, disrespect in saying that, of course. It, it's the claim that goes against the norm that generally needs a, needs a burden of proof. I, I, why does Dr. Avalos need to prove that things happen normally as they always have since and did before versus you proving that things happen uh, uh, supernaturally? Yeah. Well, you've offered an argument. I mean, and that was more than he did. Uh, so, what, what, so that, I mean, that is a, that's a good argument to, to raise. You're, you're saying the laws of nature exclude this, and so it must be false. And, and then we would have to argue about that. What I said was that the belief that God raised Jesus from the dead doesn't contradict science. It doesn't contradict any natural law, because those only describe what happens uh, naturally. And I agree that it's naturally impossible for people to rise again from the dead. I, I wholeheartedly endorse that. But what I suggest is 
that uh, the hypothesis God, ex God raised Jesus from the dead is not unacceptably ad hoc, it, it, and I do have independent reasons for believing that God exists, so I have these explanatory resources in my worldview, and so I think it's legitimate to appeal to them. Let me say as well, too, that your argument wouldn't do anything to dispute the facts of the case, things like the burial, the empty tomb, the post-mortem appearances. Those are just historical facts. What your argument would be against would be the best explanation for them. You, you would concede the facts, but just say you can never adopt a supernatural explanation. But I think that's an arbitrary restriction. It's, it's an attempt to say that the pool of live options for an explanation is going to be limited to naturalistic explanations. And if you do that, well, then I'll agree with you that some naturalistic explanation is the best explanation that's naturalistic. But that's not the question. We want to know what is the best explanation overall, including in the pool of live options, a possible supernatural explanation. Dr. Avalos has said he's willing to let that be in the pool of live options. His objection wasn't like yours. He was saying that we can't infer the resurrection because we can only appeal to known causes. But I gave counterexamples to that, tried to explain how that would impede science, and, and then also that I do have grounds for thinking that I do know God exists. So that's why I, I think it's legitimate to infer in this case the resurrection. Uh, could I have the next question for Dr. Avalos? First of all, I'd like to thank you both for being here. Thanks for a great debate. And uh, Dr. Avalos, um, you never directly refuted any of the uh, facts that Dr. Craig stated in his first uh, the opening statements. So my question to you is, um, do you have any direct refutation of any of that? I know you tried to prove that Dr. Craig was, he has uh, in the past told stuff that wasn't true, which he gave reasons for. Is there any reason that we shouldn't believe anything that he said tonight? Do you have any direct refutation of anything that he said? Thanks. I think Dr. Craig is just playing a semantic game. He, he wants to pretend that just calling something a fact makes it a fact. So he starts with the fact of post-mortem appearances. That's not a fact. We can't verify post-mortem appearances happened. All we have is a story of post-mortem appearances. What makes that story a fact? Well, uh, he uses a lot of this uh, uh, argument, as, as the, probably the earlier questioner um, pointed out, this argumentum ad vericundium, which means he uses an appeal to authority. Uh, most scholars agree. Well, listen, what, what group of scholars are you quoting? Mostly Christian scholars. What do you think most Christian scholars are going to say? They're already committed to the resurrection. Does he do that with Muslim scholars? Does he say most Muslim scholars agree that the Quran is a revelation of God? Therefore, I'm going to start with that. You see, he's doing a lot of this stuff that you're not going to notice until you dissect it very, very carefully. And, for example, 99% of texts, we have 99% reliability of the New Testament. Nonsense. We don't have the autographs. How could you possibly come up with that statistic? You can only come up with that statistic if you compare the manuscripts to the original. You don't have the original, so how would you know it's 99% like the original if you don't have the original? It's nonsense. Could I have the next question from this side, please? It's for Dr. Avalos. Um, if you don't believe in any supernatural essences to this, uh, this world at all, 
then how do you account for many miracles um, in Jesus's and all the disciples' time and times hereafter that are pretty recent, too? You're still confusing the event with stories about the events. I, I don't grant you that there were miracles. I only grant you that there are stories of miracles. And if you did that, if you did history that way, why don't you believe in Marian apparitions? Dr. Craig uh, says, well, everybody knows that people don't rise naturally from the dead. Well, there must be a supernatural explanation. Well, why don't you do that with Marian apparitions? People know that Mary couldn't possibly rise naturally from the dead. So why don't you just say, Dr. Craig, those appearances must be true. Mary must be alive, since witnesses are experiencing something. And by the way, another famous trick is, uh, you know, the disciples couldn't possibly have a pre-existing tradition. Every tradition, the first instance, doesn't have a pre-existing tradition. That's another bogus argument. If you do that, every tradition would not have a pre-existing tradition. It wouldn't be in the mind the first in, before the first instance of it. Okay, we have time for one more question for Dr. Craig. This side. Anyone? Is there a question for Dr. Craig from this side? Uh, I uh, wish to speak a moment, please. Uh, I have a driver's license here. My name is Jesus Christ. Uh, I am a scientist. I study electromagnetic phenomena. I study paramagnetic phenomena, uh, ferromagnetic phenomena, and dielectric phenomena. I think these three phenomena is what God uses to take the center of the earth, which I think has a density of 10,000 grams per cubic centimeter, which is the density of the neutron, the proton, the electron, and all subatomic particles, to make the molecules of the bodies of which we live. I think that it is time for us to take a good look at uh, what we're doing tonight. I, I like it. I, I like when people discuss and talk, and it doesn't mean that we all have the same ideas. It means that through this discussion, we're going to come to a conclusion, uh, a little bit better setting for the days ahead. Now, here's what my question to both of these men are. What is the density of the center of the earth? I don't know. Well, perhaps ending with an unanswerable question <laughs> uh, is a perfect segue into asking all of you to think carefully about the unanswered questions you have from this evening. Uh, and I hope you will uh, really think through uh, the arguments you've heard on both sides and uh, join me in thanking both participants for a very stimulating debate. For more information and resources from Dr. Craig, go to reasonablefaith.org.